The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are uh, in the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible, it's going to be at the very front. Um, we were previously in 1 Peter, and that has uh, we finished that last week. And so now we are in the book of Genesis and we're picking up where we left off. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll ask for God's help, and we'll start working through this together, all right? God, as we uh, jump back into the book of Genesis, and we consider uh, what you have shown us in the life of Abram, um, I pray that you would help us um, to experience your nearness to us, and that you are personally engage with us and care for us. Would you help us to see what type of God you are? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we are looking at the book of Genesis again, and I just want to kind of give us a little bit of some kind of groundwork of what we covered up to this point. Um, we spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 through 11, and moving forward, we're going to be kind of blasting through the rest of the book. Genesis is 50 chapters long. And um, I hope you would forgive me. I'm not overly interested in preaching 50-plus sermons on the book of Genesis. I think it's a great book. Uh, lots of great stuff in it. Um, but the first 11 chapters are really kind of where the meat is, and then we really kind of can pick and select other parts of the book of Genesis and move forward. Genesis 1 through 11 really basically sets the framework for um, who, uh, kind of the structure of the universe, how the Bible thinks about the way things are set up. And it gives us a people, place, and a purpose, right? So we saw at the very beginning, God creates everything. What does that mean with the creation week? We looked at all that stuff. The goodness of God and the way he's designed us. And in the middle of that, people, Adam and Eve, we had a purpose and a place. And what they were supposed to do was to enjoy God and expand his goodness through the world. Uh, as you are very well aware, um, that did not go according to plan. <laughs> Season one end, ended with a cliffhanger of sin and death and entering the world. And, and as Adam and Eve uh, went forward, um, not only did they personally rebel against God, but then we have Noah, where God decides to flood the world, and the Tower of Babel. In each of those things, we saw how sin and death breaks the world apart. And I think we can kind of leave Genesis 1 through 11, kind of with the sense of like, where do I... Where do individuals fit into that? Because we're talking about people that are like thousands of years ago, and if you think about like all the time period of what Genesis 1 through 11 is supposed to cover, it's a few thousand years maybe or longer, who knows, and there's like these little like pictures of one instances of when people engage with God. And now what we get into in Genesis 12, which is what we're going to pick up with this morning, it is how God interacts with us personally. We find, again, we ended Genesis 1 through 11 basically saying, it seems like the point of the book of Genesis is God wearing one of those, hello, my name is, tags, and him introducing himself to us. Now we get to do that in a more kind of personal, intimate level, not just kind of like broad structures, because, I mean, when we, even when we look at this building around us, like, we don't really see the inner structure beams. We can see all the painting and everything else around it. But... We saw that in Genesis 1 through 11. Now we're looking at what is it like for God to live with us personally? 
and engage with us individually. So that is what we are beginning with. Here's what I want to do. We're going to preach or talk through Genesis 12, 15, and 17. This is what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. This is the basis of how the rest of the book is going to play out. Super important for the rest of the Bible. I um, am not going to read all the verses involved here. We're going to read selections as we kind of move through. So as we move through, the main point that we're looking at this morning, if we can put this up, the, main, the God who calls us at the beginning is the God who carries us to the end. And by the way, if you have questions, as always, you can shoot those here. Those come to my phone where we will do our best to engage with those. So the God who calls us at the beginning is the one who carries us to the end. We're going to pick up here Genesis 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And in this section, the way we relate to God, first of all, we're called by God. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go to your country and your kindred and your, uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram had 75, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they sent out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram again and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country to the rest of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going to... Now, I don't know how many of you have ever done a job fair. Any, anybody been to a job fair? Okay, this is not what I was expecting. Nick's been to a job fair. David's been to a job fair. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say a job fair? And no? You, okay, Caitlin, who doesn't like to raise her hand. Okay, Caitlin, all right. Even extra better. Yeah. When you think of a job fair, you're looking for somebody to, you're, you're kind of like going through and it's kind of a la carte of like, I want a job, you've got jobs, I want to find the best job that works for me. And you're walking through and you're trying to find one that works for you and you're, you're kind of doing like the, here's my resume and setting up things and you know, taking, you know, they're like, whoever's got the best swag. I mean, what's the, what's the best, what was the swag that you offered, Nick? I just, okay, the deck of cards is cool. The stress ball, yeah, the stress ball just seems like a lame kind of thing to give out. All right, sounds good, yeah. <laughs> but you give stuff out, right? You're, you're, you're engaging, you're trying to win a relationship. Basically, you've got a bunch of like 18 to 22 year olds who are trying to find a job, at least when, when I was thinking of it in college, and you're trying to give them a job. 
the thing that you do that's kind of underlying that is that you go to that looking for something to build a life around, like build the beginning of your life around. I'm trying to start my life off on my own. Here, we have the reverse. Abram lives, if you look at the beginning, at the end of chapter 11, Abram is from Ur. Ur, at the ancient world, was known for moon worship. It was known for, anybody, Moon Knight fans? Worshiping Moon Knight, all that stuff. They were like big into that. And so here's Abram just kind of enjoying his life, moon worshiping in the ancient world. And what do we find in verse 1 of chapter 12? Now the Lord said to Abram, See, the Lord, he calls, he goes to Abram. He begins the relationship with him, right? Abram's not shopping around kind of job fair of the gods and kind of like, I don't know, Babylonian gods, like he's done some pretty cool stuff. Yahweh doesn't have anything on his resume. I don't know what their market value is going to be. None of that. The Lord pursues Abram personally. This is instead of us finding God, it is, in fact, the beginning of the story of how we begin our relationship with God is God finding us. God pursues Abram. He wants him. He wants him to be his man. He wants, to be in his, he wants him to be in his family. We're going to talk about that in a minute. God pursues Abram, and what does he, what does he offer him? Verses 1 to 3. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, right? So you just read behind that, all of your sense of security and comfort and well-being, right? And go to the land that I will show you. Now, Canaan shows up later in, the ver- in, in verse uh, 5, but su- supposedly between when, Ab- when God says it to Abram and when Abram goes there, there's some sort of additional communication. But the initial call is just, I, the Lord, am engaging you, Abram, and you will go. And I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Even in the ancient world, regardless of how you understand age, Abram was 75 years old. Bro, this is a tall deal to begin with. Like, this is not like a selling interaction. Abram brings nothing to the table that really offers God much to work with, anything at all. I mean, and here, again, we see in the very roots of what God's relationship with us is like. It is God himself who comes to Abram and says, I'm going to do all the hard work in this relationship. I'm going to do the heavy lifting. I want you to be the recipient. You see this again, frankly, when you see Jesus call his disciples. I don't know if you've ever read through the gospel accounts, but they're very bizarre in how he begins to kind of accrue his apostles or disciples around him. He just walks up to the tax booth and says, follow me. Or he walks up to the fishing shore and says, follow me. And we kind of all kind of fill in the gaps in there and kind of say, well, he probably had an established relationship. That may be true. Abram, even in the story, may have heard of Yahweh. But here, the defining moment is when they receive the call of God. Follow me. God engages them when they're not looking for him, and his call creates the space for them to respond. Right? They aren't looking for God. God comes looking for us. Now, I'm not saying that's like some sort of like ultra crazy, like anxiety-inducing spiritual experience. 
It is quite simply what's happening right now. It is what happens in any church service where Jesus is preached. God is addressing us, and in addressing us, he is creating the space for us to respond to him. And it's not just limited to church services. I'm not trying to give that impression. But when God calls us, he calls us to nothing but himself. You'll notice that in this call to Abram, what is he offering him? He said, I'm going to take you someplace. Where are you going to take me? Disney World? No, don't know. I'm going to give you stuff. What are you going to give me? Ridiculously outlandish stuff. Okay, that's really out of reach. At the end of it, what, Abram's call, what Abram is called to is God himself and God alone. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to himself because he is the type of Lord who must be followed. When he calls us, his call gives us the ability to respond to him. We don't offer and God responds. We don't text and God replies. God creates a space for us to respond and this grace, as we're going to kind of look through it in the rest of this book, it's a costly grace that calls us out of the security and comforts of our culture and place, our reliance on ourselves and our own wisdom, into this precarious realm of only having God and all the securities being fleeting. But this company in the relationship is God himself. So what is this type of God like? That's what we're going to look at here in chapter 15. So, we're going to pick up here. We're going to, God calls us. Chapter 15, God covenants with us. So there's a lot of stuff that happens in here, and Abram doesn't come out of it looking very good. Um, that's kind of the short of it. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone on vacation, and you've just thought, you know what, I'm going to get in trouble with the local uh, people here, so I'm just going to let my wife stay with them while I get away free. That's the type of guy Abram was, not a great guy. I'm just going to say. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to read our passage for us, and then we're going to kind of explain a few things and kind of swing back through it. I'm not going to read it twice, but just to kind of, there's a lot going on here in the ancient context that might not immediately make, be obvious to us, because the closest thing we have to what happens in this passage is a marriage covenant or a business contract, and they're not the same as what's going on here. So just kind of like peek your idea. There's something going on here that we need ancient eyes to see. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven. Sorry, I had to figure out how many verses I was reading here. Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and, he, was, and he, he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring here a heifer three years old, 
a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down and the carcasses on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. I'm just going to skip down. When the sun had gone down, verse 17, and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the, uh, of the river Euphrates. It gives more of the boundary line. So what, what is going on here? Because we have God engaging Abram, and then Abram's like, I mean, I appreciate the fact that God's kind of like, hey, I can take the questions, that's no problem. So Abram questions God, he's kind of like, yo, you promised this, what gives, where is this coming out of this, this situation, because I don't see this lining up. Then God has this kind of like, there's kind of like two dramatic points, right? He brings him out of his, presumably in his tent, I assume, I, maybe it was his cave, but his tent, I'm just going to say, stands out, looks up at the stars and says, I want you to count the stars, that's, I'm going to fulfill my promise. In fact, as many as stars there are, that's how many of your offsprings are going to be. And then we had this whole kind of like... Um, semi-serial killer horror show drama section, right? Where he's like, cut the animals in half. Yeah, that section. All right, the first section. What's going on there? Have any of you, I don't know if you've ever like, because of light pollution, we just cannot see the stars. Has anybody been in a context where you like get to see the stars without light pollution? Bro, for real. So my, my dad is military. We were stationed in Puerto Rico. So not only are we on an island where we're less light pollution, but then when the hurricanes would come through, um, it would knock out the entire, uh, pow- all the power in the entire island. So you're literally like on an island in the middle of the, you know, ocean. And you can see like, you're like, oh, it is ac- actually milky, the Milky Way. Like there's that stuff in there that makes it all milky and you can see the stars and like, oh, look, if you look closely, there's the Andromeda galaxy. You can see like with the naked eye and you can see the star constellations and like, yeah, if I lived under these stars, I would make up stories about how there's constellations and they were like, they're really cool and did stuff, you know? Like, so that, again, ancient context. They didn't have electricity, just to remind us. <laughs> no light pollution. And so when Abram is confronted with this, you can imagine, no children look up promised as many as the stars. And by all scientific measurements, there is, as I believe the number is, 100 billion trillion stars in the entire universe, or known universe. Anybody watching the James Webb photos being released? Bro, they're lit, you know? So like, and that's just like there. (laughs) Like, that's just sitting there. Like, God's just doing that. He says, that's what your your, your, your offspring is going to be like. Now, this second scene. Okay, before we get into some of the details, just remind us, in our contemporary world, right, our kind of like covenants or our, our contracts with other people are, right, we, I'm not trying to demean marriage, but marriage is like a contract or covenant, right? We're going to bind our lives together, etc. right? Then you have like a business contract where it's like, I'm going to pay you for your time and you're going to get these things, we're going to provide this, and we're going to get these things in return. Or like a land contract where you like sign over land to people. In the ancient world, 
you were basically little tribes all over the place and you needed to have some type of safety and security because it was a very dangerous place. And you've ever seen Mad Max, you got marauders all over the place, right? They're all coming for you. So what they had was they had the peer-to-peer contracts, but they had this contract or, they, or the covenant called the Caesarean Vassal, Caesarean Vassal Treaty. Sorry, I had to get my academic terms right because I know that you guys are going to quiz me afterwards. In that contract, what it did is kind of like a, a mob boss is not the same thing, but a mob boss comes in and he's kind of like, I'm going to tax you 50% of what you make and I'm going to provide your protection from all the other guys, right? But this was a contract that basically formed a relationship. It formed a family. And what that family meant is that the people who were the um, vassals, right, the, the lesser kings, they got all the privileges of the older kings, the, older, the, the, the better kings. They had the land, they had the army, they had the finances, they had the power, they had the muscle to be able to kind of push all their enemies away, and they would bo- uh, make this relationship, and basically, the, the lower guys, we get all of your provision and help, we get some land. The lower guys, they give, you know, money, time, they give them loyalty. So it basically is the way they made contracts back then. And so here's how they, they have, there's kind of like six-ish parts of that contract. There's a preamble, when they would write them down, there was a preamble that said, here's the nature of our relationship up to this point. So there was a historical prologue that said, this is what, it's, you know, this is what the, the big, big guys have been doing, here's what the little guys have been doing, the covenant stipulations of what everybody must agree to, um, provisions, and you would read the covenant regularly, like here's how often you have to read this in front of everybody, witnesses who would witness it, and then a blessing and curse for people for what they didn't do. That's the background of when the ancient world, when they write this whole kind of like, all right, cut the halfers in half and cut all this stuff in half, that's the ceremony. Like this was the covenant ceremony where that would happen because the implication is, right, because we read this and we're kind of like, bro, this is like crazy with these animals getting cut in half. But the implication is we're about to walk down the aisle, so to speak. And that aisle is, on, is in between these animals that have been cut in half. And if you break this covenant, you're going to get cut in half like these animals. Like that's kind of like the, the implication of the dramatic moment here. You walk through these animals, you break this covenant, it's not going to be fun. That's the threat of what's going on here. So you see here in this story with Abram, wait, what do you see here, right? Abram, um, and the Lord said, Behold, I am the Lord who brought you out from the land of Ur. Right? So here's, this, here's the history of our relationship. I'm the one who called you, right? You begin to see how this matches up to these vassal, you know, Caesarean vassal treaty thing, right? And I'm going to promise you this. I'm going to give you that land over there. All of that land, I'm going to give you. And then your kids are going to be as numbered as the, as, as the stars. And in a certain sense, in the ancient world, the stars were identified with the angelic host. So they are being almost, in a certain sense, called to be a witness to what God is doing here. And then I want you to notice, verse 17. The sun had gone down and it was dark. Behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. First of all, 
is this some hocus pocus stuff? Because like for real, this sounds like a Disney movie. Like, what is walking? What's going on here? Well, you have to remember this story is being written for people who would experience the Exodus, and the words being used here for a smoking fire pot or a smoking. Let me get that word right. Yeah, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Right? Can you imagine anything? What comes out? What comes out of a smoking fire pot? Steam, cloud. What is it that led the Lord's people through the desert in the story of the Exodus? It was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So here, these two images, and they're pulling from the exact same words used for the Exodus story, is an allusion to the God who led his people out of Exodus is the same God who makes this type of promise. He's the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. This is the God that's, going, that's walking through these pieces. And you'll notice who doesn't walk through the pieces of this covenant action? Abram. You see what's going on here. This covenant is serious. It's a king making a, a contract with a lesser king. I'm going to promise to give you all this stuff. You're going to promise to be loyal to me. And if you don't fulfill this promise, just like these pieces that we're walking through right now, you're going to get cursed. But if Abram doesn't walk through those pieces, do you realize what this is saying? God is saying, I'm going to fulfill this covenant. And in fact, if you or I break this covenant, I'm going to take the curse. Does that sound familiar? This is what we find in Jesus. This is the outline that begins to draw who we find Jesus to be. See, God wants us to be in a relationship with him. And he's not passive about it. He's not job fair kind of like, hey, like, I'll give you a little bit of something. Here's a little, a little stress ball squishy for your comfort, right? <laughs> he's for real about his, his relationship with us. He's so serious that he makes a promise in front of the entire universe. He calls the stars to be present and to be a, a witness as he signs the dotted line and he stops us from signing the contract. No. God himself, I'm going to sign the contract and I'm going to take the curse of whatever, whoever breaks this. And Jesus, isn't that what we find over and over again? We try to figure out how we can get God to be on our side and to give us grace. And like, if I just go to church enough, or if I just pray enough, or if I just get these things in my life enough in line, then God will help me out. We always are trying to figure out how to slip our works into it. But this is the type of God that we worship. He gives us absolute, undefiled, pure grace, absolutely based on who he is without any reference to who we are because he wants to, because he likes to. That is the type of God that we are being introduced to here, right? This is a scandal of grace. Zero obedience, zero need to get God's attention, zero need to do anything to get God's, uh, God's eyes on you or to build up a spiritual resume of any kind. God wants you he has paid the curse of our, I mean, I'm not saying like all of us are like the worst sinners in the world. Maybe we are. I don't know. I'm not the one to be able to judge that. 
But we have all, in our own ways, really messed things up. And I don't know what the list is for you. And it kind of, like, it's tragic and horrible. But when God looks at it, he thinks, I want you. I want you to be in my family. I want you to be in my country. I want you to be under my protection. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make none of it based on who you are and what you do. I'm going to make all of that relationship based on me and what I provide for you, which is myself. This is the scandal of what grace is. This is true Christian freedom. If you walk in this morning thinking like, well, I haven't, you know, whatever the list is, read my Bible enough, been to church enough, prayed enough, given enough, 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 whatever it is. I haven't, whatever the list is, I haven't not sinned in a particular way in the last few weeks, or I haven't been, you know, at peace or whatever. God says, I, I know. And actually, the curse of what that means for your life, Jesus bore on the cross for us. And he still wants us to be in his family. So, let's finish out this passage. Just looking at a few verses here in verse 17. These are the three main passages for what's called the Abrahamic covenant. You guys track with me? We're cool? All right. Finally, the God who calls us at the beginning is the one who carries us at the end, to the end. That relationships look like being marked by God. Chapter 17, verse 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, in the meantime, he's changed his name. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout the generations. Whether born in your house or brought to you, uh, bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your household and he who is brought with money shall surely be circumcised. You shall, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Um, he has broken my covenant. Okay. I realize this is a bit of a weird passage to read in public. Um, it makes us think uncomfortable things. I don't really understand why God chose this as his covenant sign. Like, I don't think there's anything magic about it. I can only assume that the main point is it is a way of being a physical mark without being a, a, a harm to human safety in life. That's all I can think of. Because anything else on our bodies that we start cutting off is like, yikes. You know what I mean? Like, no thanks. So that's my only assumption about why this is why God makes this his covenant. This is certainly a distinctive one because it stands out in the ancient world. It is, to use the classic language, it is a sign. It points to something and a seal. It promises something. God's people belong to him, and there's an objective reality to why this matters. You belong to me, and it's not some subjective experience, visionary thing you have with God. It is, in fact, God himself who loves you, wants you, and has marked you for his own. So, the way this relates to us 
In the Old Testament, covenants always happen. They usually have a sign or a mark with them, right? So um, with Abram, it's a circumcision. With the Mosaic covenant with God's people in Exodus, it's the Sabbath, right? So they keep the Sabbath as a sign of being marked by God. Let's go over a couple slides here. In the New Testament, when we believe in Jesus, thank God it has changed. Colossians 12, or 2, 11 through 12, and it's so important that I stated it twice, right? Um, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we come over to the New Testament. The mark of God is a baptism. It's baptism that doesn't save us. It doesn't make us better with God. What it does is it says, I've been marked, I've been si- I have a sign in my life, right? Kind of like my wedding ring. I just want you to recognize this. See, I have my wedding ring on. I have not broken my marriage vows. Um, I'm still married, no wedding ring on. The wedding ring sign, it points to the fact that I am married, and it represents the seal of marriage. Baptism does the same thing for us. It doesn't do anything magical, but it recognizes something going on on the inside and how we relate to God, that he has called us, that he's established a relationship with us. So if you've not been baptized, we'd love to take care of that and do that together. Baptism recognizes our need to be, be marked by God and owned by God and points to him in our lives. See, the Christian life is marked by pure grace from beginning to end. I don't know if you come in this morning tired about your relationship with God, anxious, ambivalent, kind of like, nah, I'm going to go do this church thing, see what God does. I hope you see in this passage here the type of God that we have come together to worship this morning is not put off by that. That's not too insurmountable for him. He's not even necessarily even angry about it. He takes care of those things. He sees them. The curse of what those things could do in our lives, they have been put on Jesus, and Jesus willingly takes on our ambivalence towards God, our indifference towards God, maybe our anger towards God, our tired relationship towards God, our anxiety about our relationship with God and others. And in Jesus taking it on himself, he again confirms for us over and over and over again that he is the type of God who gives us pure grace, unfettered, completely pure for us to enjoy with him. If this sounds like a get-out-of-jail-free card, let's pay attention to the rest of the story. That's not to say that obedience to God doesn't come, because Abraham does obey God. But the reality is, grace is so shocking that this is the type of God that we worship. This is the type of God who is in this room right now leaning in towards us. He is the type of God who wants us in his family. So let's pray. God, as we have looked to you and asked you for help and seen who you are in this passage, I pray that we would experience that you are the God who calls us and carries us. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, 
proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.